Good evening. Uh, I'm Jeremy, in case we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. Um, I should probably start by saying my Spanish isn't that great. Am I meant to do it in Spanish first, then? Well, no, okay. <laughs> um, we're going to be uh, working through that, that passage together only in English, I'm afraid. Um, but uh, So please keep your Bible open in front of you so you can see it as we go through it together. Uh, my number is going to be uh, up on the screen um, in the corner there. Um, so you can text through any questions. Hopefully we'll have time for Q&A at the end. Uh, and I'm going to pray that God would help us as we come to his word now. Let's, let's pray. Hang on. I just need to turn this light on. Does anyone know how to do that? Done. Now let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for Matthew's gospel, his account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Thank you for the way that he shows us Jesus. And Father, I pray for each of us tonight as we work through this part of Matthew together that we would see Jesus and that we would hear him speak to us. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, you are really in for a treat this evening. I can confidently guarantee you this sermon right here is the greatest of all time. I don't mean... This sermon right here, I mean this sermon right here, the the sermon Jesus himself preached, the one commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, I hope my one goes okay, but it's Jesus' sermon that's often called the greatest of all time. See, 2,000 years ago, Jesus turned the whole world upside down, and all of that really goes back to... This Sermon on the Mount. How so? Well, Mitch set the scene for us last week. Uh, John the Baptist had come preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then Jesus is going around the countryside preaching exactly the same thing, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, the kingdom of heaven from the Old Testament, is the reign of God. When God finally takes back control of this world he made, the time when he'll stop everyone rebelling against him, uh, living for ourselves instead of for him, living for ourselves at the expense of people around us. When God removes all the evil in the world and fixes everything that's broken, it sounds like John and Jesus are saying, hey, that time is now. And it doesn't just sound like it, it actually looks like it too. As Jesus starts healing people, everyone who comes to him, diseases, disabilities, demons... This is the blessing of God's kingdom breaking into the world. This blessing of the kingdom is something you obviously want to be part of. 
but the judgment of the kingdom. That's something you don't want to be found on the wrong side of. So turn your life around right now before it's too late. That's the message of John and then Jesus, which raises the burning question, who is going to be in God's kingdom? And who won't be? Who belongs to God as his true people? And who are God's enemies who will be removed in judgment? The healing miracles have attracted uh, huge crowds to, to, to Jesus, but actually only a few of them so far have become his committed followers. Uh, people like Simon, Andrew, James and John, just, just a very few so far. So Jesus sees all these swarming crowds around him and he actually withdraws up a mountain and he sits down. See, not standing in order to proclaim to the crowds anymore, actually sitting down for an intimate training session with his close disciples huddled round. But the swarms of crowds, the one that drove uh, Jesus up the mountain, they are meant to overhear what he is saying to his disciples because what they're going to hear is Jesus completely redefining who are the true people of God. Who belongs in heaven with God? And who is going to hell? The stakes couldn't be higher. And it turns out the answer is not who they expect. It might not be who you expect. But as we start the Sermon on the Mount this evening, you're going to start to get an answer to the question... Am I one of God's people or not? Our passage has uh, eight blessings, verses 3 to 10. You can see there in your Bible, they're often called the Beatitudes, based on the Latin word for blessing, sometimes called Macarisms, based on the Greek word for blessing. I've chosen to call them blessings, based on the English word for blessing. Numbers there, text through any questions as to how I came up with that. And these blessings, they actually define who will be in the kingdom of heaven. You see that in the the first blessing and the last blessing. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. These are the people the kingdom of heaven belongs to. The blessings actually uh, fall into two groups of four. The first group describes the attitude you need to get in God's kingdom. The second group describes how that attitude works out in relationships. Finally, we, we get to the famous images of salt and light, which actually say that this way in, when worked out, is what draws other people in too. We'll get to that by the end. We're going to start with the first blessings. 
You've got to realize what's really shocking here is that not just the crowds, but actually Jesus' disciples too, they would have had a super clear picture in their heads of who God's true people really were. Most obviously, the religious leaders. They're the ones who who talk the most about God's law. The ones who say, well, we belong to God because we keep God's law. The ones who say, you and you and you, you don't belong to God because you don't keep God's law. Who could belong in God's kingdom more than these religious leaders? But Jesus flips that on its head. In the first blessings, he says, it's not those who feel religiously superior. It's actually the poor in spirit. Those who are broken and ashamed over how bad they are. Only if you mourn over your own sinfulness will you then be comforted with God's forgiveness. It's not those who think they deserve stuff from God. It's those humble enough to know they don't who actually will inherit everything. It's not those who are satisfied with how righteous they are. It's those who know they are unrighteous, who hunger and thirst to become righteous. They're the ones who will be filled. Jesus flips the common understanding on its head. And actually, it can be hard for us to grasp even today. Like a friend of mine started coming to church as part of getting clean, uh, beating his substance addiction. It's working really well for a while till one day he, he just kind of disappears. We don't see him at church anymore, or won't a- answer calls, messages. This goes on for what feels like ages. Till one day, praise God, he, he turns up back at church. And I'm like, mate, what happened? He explains how like, he, he fell in with his old crew. Um, he fell back into his old habits. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, but, but why did you stop coming to church? Why did you break off contact? It's like, oh, I just felt ashamed, you know? Like, I didn't belong in this group of people. Now, I get what he means. Can you relate to what he's saying? The common understanding of who belongs to God is decent people, hard-working people, the kind of people who never take drugs, uh, never drink too much. They've got their life together. They've got their family together. That's the normal understanding of who belongs to God, right? But please hear Jesus now. If you think you're too sinful, too broken to belong in God's people, that's what shows you do. If you're poor in spirit, 
if you mourn over your sin, if you humbly admit you don't deserve anything from God, if you desperately wish you weren't unrighteous anymore, Jesus says you are precisely who is in. Such good news, isn't it? For everyone who's broken and knows it. Not so good if you don't consider yourself broken. Here's actually a really real danger for uh, a lot of us who've been following Jesus for a long time now. See, see, when you come to Jesus hungry and thirsty for righteousness, he says he'll fill you. He'll make you more righteous over time. How you relate to God, how you relate to other people, which is obviously great if you don't let that make you forget how sinful you are without him. As Jesus makes you more righteous, it's easy to think, hey, I'm actually pretty decent now. Like, like, look at how hard I work. Look, look how I lead my family, how I read the Bible, how I come to church, how I serve people. It actually makes sense, doesn't it, that I'm in with God, which is a disaster. Because Jesus is saying the only basis for being in with God is realising you don't deserve to be. Here's the paradox. If you mourn because you know you're sinful and broken and desperately wish you were more righteous, you are in with God. If you think you've got things pretty sorted now, that you should be in with God, then you aren't. Is that you? Do you need to repent of being satisfied with how you are now? Do you need to mourn before God over your sin? The best way to see if you have this attitude before God is actually how that very attitude works out in relationships with other people. That's what the the second group of blessings is all about. So first, it's those who show mercy who will be shown mercy. Why? Well, because you show mercy to others when you know you need mercy from God yourself. That is, when you're poor in spirit, mourning over your sin, desperate to be righteous because you know you're not, you show mercy to others, which shows that you want mercy from God. And it's the people who want mercy from God who will have it. A second, um, pure in heart there, it it might sound like an internal attitude, but Psalms 24 and 73 both use that phrase, pure in heart, to mean acting with integrity. They, They use it in direct contrast to deceiving people, direct contrast to exploiting people. Why does acting with integrity show you're in with God? Because your actions actually reveal the true desires of your heart. See, Israel's leaders, they were pure in a way. They were pure in ritual. And and that's how they tried to be in with God. 
A lot of us today, we, we want to be pure in theology as a way of being in with God. But actually, it doesn't matter how pure you are in ritual or theology if you deceive people. If you exploit people, that shows actually you don't really want relationship with God. What you really want is personal gain here and now. In contrast, if you're pure in heart, acting with integrity, it actually shows you're willing to forgo personal gain here and now. It shows uh, that what you really hunger and thirst for most in this world is righteousness. What you really want in life is relationship with God. And if what you want is relationship with God, that's what you'll get. As Jesus says, you will see God. Third, you will make peace with other people when you know God has made peace with you. Which is actually the exact opposite to the Pharisees, the religious leaders in in Jesus' day. See, they saw themselves as the the righteous people of God, oppressed by the evil Roman Empire. So they felt justified in leading Israel to war with Rome, the war that culminated in Rome ultimately destroying Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now today there's actually a, a culture war between religious conservatives and and social uh, um, secular progressives. And increasingly I see on social media, I don't know if you're seeing this too, there's this increasing call for Christians to stand up in this war. They say that the time for being nice and winsome is over. I mean, they're attacking us. It's time to fight back for what's right. But listen to Jesus saying, blessed are the peacemakers. If you know you're not righteous yourself, you actually won't feel entitled to fight with other people. You'll see yourself as actually no less sinful than all the people who are attacking you. You'll love that God made peace with you And so you'll actually seek to make peace with with all the other sinful people around you. That's what Jesus means here when he says you'll be called sons of God. See, in the ancient world, you actually didn't get to choose your career like we do today. Um, Sons just did whatever their dad did, right? So, So like carpenter dads had carpenter sons, shepherd dads had shepherd sons. So if you make peace with people around you, you actually show that you are a son of your peacemaking Father in heaven. Finally, if you mourn over your sin, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that is actually going to be a major problem for everyone around you who doesn't. Uh, This bit about persecution, it's actually the first hint that the kingdom of heaven isn't actually going to take over the whole world as suddenly as everyone hoped. 
as Jesus is going to unpack a bit later, especially Matthew chapter 13, God's reign actually starts really tiny, grows slowly, one more person at a time, only in the end encompassing all the world. Which means until then, until that end, those who come under God's reign now are actually living right in and amongst everyone who still passionately rejects God's reign. And if they reject God, they'll reject you. Which actually makes following Jesus really hard. Probably why Jesus expands on it in verses uh, 11 and 12, you can see there. He gives more airtime to blessed are you if you're persecuted. Probably to explain how something that sounds so hard could actually be something that's good. Except... I don't know about you, what he says here actually seems to make it worse, at least at first. Jesus says, you're blessed when they insult you, persecute you, and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice. If I think about when I've actually seen this happening to people... Gladness and rejoicing aren't the first emotions that that spring up. Uh, Years ago, I was part of um, Forest Lake Urban Mission. Uh, It's like a beach mission, if you know what that is, except by a lake instead of a beach. Um, So we're running this holiday kids program to teach kids about Jesus. We've got about um, 60 kids, uh, about half from the local churches, uh, but actually about half from the local school. Uh, We were very openly advertising that it was a Christian program, um, but I guess, you know, um, free childcare in the holidays is free childcare in the holidays. One super encouraging thing was when uh, one of the kids, I'd say probably grade six, he's not from a Christian background at all, but he gets super interested in Jesus. He's asking really great questions. He even asks for a Bible so he can read about Jesus at home, Uh, to which Richard, one of of the um, other leaders, says, sure, gives him a Bible kid comes back the next day he's clearly been reading the bible because he's got even better questions that he that he's talking through with the leaders but then the day after that his mum turns up uh, without her son this time she's carrying the bible and it's obvious she is super mad she marches up to richard and she's like did you give this to my son it's like, uh, yeah, he, he, he asked for it. And did you tell him he had to read it or else he'd go to hell? Richard's like, no, no, I didn't say, I'd never say anything like that. No one said anything like that. Well, that's what he said. I said, I'm, I'm not going to have this thing in my house. And that's what he said. Makes me sick to think you religious people try to scare kids like that. You won't be doing that to my son anymore. And, and she actually throws the Bible. Sure enough, her boy never comes back. Later, Richard and I are 
are kind of talking it through, trying to to process it together. And he breaks down in tears. He's like, I don't think I did anything wrong, but I don't know, did I? I think that's why Jesus takes the time to expand on that last blessing, that, that being persecuted is actually a blessing. Going so far as to say rejoice and be glad. Because see, when you are falsely accused like that, just for showing the love of Jesus, it is easy to think you are doing it wrong. Jesus is saying here, no, it's actually proof you're doing it right. When people hate the idea of God's reign over them, they're going to hate everyone who embraces God's reign. If they hate you for that, it's actually proof right here, right now, long before the final day of judgment, that you really are in with God. Of course, that doesn't take away all the pain of rejection. It doesn't take away the fear, just knowing that's the kind of thing that's coming. But if what you most want in life is forgiveness of sins, to be made righteous, to have relationship with God, then persecution for the sake of Jesus is proof that you have that. And that is something to rejoice in. Mercy, integrity, peacemaking, persecution, they're actually all demonstrations that you have that attitude, that deep heart desire of someone who is in God's kingdom. Perhaps another reason Jesus expands on that last persecution one is that the fear of persecution is probably the thing most likely to stop us wanting to work out these blessed qualities in front of other people for fear of being persecuted for them. But Jesus is actually not hiding these qualities, putting these qualities on display, is precisely what's going to draw more and more people to God. That's the point of the salt and the light. In the ancient world, uh, salt was used for lots of things, uh, preserving meat, cleaning children. But in the Old Testament, the most common use was actually for taste. Uh, The sacrifices were salted for taste. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, or perhaps better, the salt of the land... He actually recalls the role Israel had. Israel's obedience to God was meant to make the land of Israel uh, tasty and attractive to the nations around so that they'd come in from all around to meet the true God of Israel. Problem is, Israel lost its saltiness. They didn't obey God which is why it now has to be the followers of Jesus, the, one, the small group he addresses now as you, not the rest of Israel listening in. 
They're the ones who'll make the land salty and tasty for other nations to come in and know God. But how tragic would it be then if the followers of Jesus ended up going the same way as the rest of Israel? Hiding those blessed qualities Jesus has just unpacked for fear of persecution. Jesus makes the same point with the image of light. He says to his followers specifically, you are the light of the world. Which is staggering because in Isaiah, it's Israel that's meant to be the light of the world. The the ones uh, pointing all the nations to God. But also in Isaiah, it's Israel who fails to do that. So again, it is the followers of Jesus who must be that light pointing people to God. Jesus says you, you can't hide a city set on a hill. In the same way, he says, you don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket. What's the point of that? You, you light a lamp and you put it up on a stand so that it lights the whole house. If we work out those blessed qualities in front of people, know in advance some of them are going to hate us for doing that. But others will be drawn to God. Jesus is saying the good works that you do reflecting your attitude to God, they are what draws in other people to know God too. Not that Jesus is like against words per se. As you can see from the Sermon on the Mount, he has a few of his own. But Jesus practices what he preaches and that is really what draws all of us to him. By the end of Matthew, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus himself is poor in spirit and mourning. Not because he sinned, but because he is taking our sin on himself. He's persecuted for righteousness. He stands trial with integrity. He humbles himself to death on a cross, taking our sin to to make us righteous making peace between us and God, offering mercy to everyone who asks for it. Jesus practiced what he preached here and this is really what turned the whole world upside down. And Jesus says to his followers, it is your good works that are going to draw more people to God. Maybe you feel like your works aren't anywhere near good enough to do that. That is a great start. Because remember, you need to start by being poor in spirit, mourning over your sin. But as you hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
be spurred on with this thought. As Jesus fills you with righteousness, that's what will more, draw more and more people to him. Let's pray that would happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus. Even more, we thank you for how he lived them out. Suffering. Humbly submitting himself to death on a cross. Being persecuted for righteousness, acting with integrity. All to make peace with us and and offer us mercy. Thank you, Father, that Jesus comforts the afflicted. And he also challenges the comfortable. Help us, Father, not to be comfortable with where we're at. Help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that we might be filled, that we might draw more and more people to know your love in Jesus too. In his name we pray. Amen.